put your website to work while you play. A website works 24-7, so no matter where you are or what you're doing, people can still find you online. Start building your website today at GoDaddy.com. It starts with a .com domain. Enter promo code 199MYLF, that's 199MILF, at checkout to get your .com for just $1.99. Some limitations apply. See website for details. Welcome to MILF Talk, Make Your Life Fabulous. I'm Sophie Venable, psychologist, life coach, mother of two, and author of MILF 101, Make Your Life Fabulous. Whether you're married with children, single, divorced, or all of the above, I'm here talking to you about life, relationships, and of course, whenever possible, sex. But today we're actually going to talk about ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. Did you know that approximately 6.4 million children, 4 to 17 years of age, have been diagnosed with ADHD as of 2011? And now, how many adults are being diagnosed as well? Do you ever wonder if you have ADD? Many of us toss that expression around jokingly. You know, oh, that's my ADD. But for some, it might be worth sincerely asking the question. Today, we're going to learn more about the diagnosis and treatment options and how some off-label use might be putting your college student at risk. My guest today, he's a mighty handsome and well-educated man. That always makes my job more fun. He is the executive director of Alternatives Behavioral Health and a lecturer at UCLA as well as Cal State Long Beach. He's an addiction expert, both personally and professionally experienced, yes. And he's heavily involved in research and dedicated to exploring holistic treatment options. He comes to us today well-versed in current treatments being used in ADD and ADHD and can answer our burning questions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Adi Jaffe. Thanks for having me. So nice to get applause. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Both of us. Yes. So um, so ADHD, you're familiar, yes? I am. I'm yes. pers- like drugs, I'm personally Personal. and professionally <laughs> familiar. Yes, very much so. It seems it's a relatively new diagnosis um, since the early 80s. Uh, first, I think the first question that people still have on some level is, is it is it real? Right. And um, and can you uh, also explain to our listeners the difference between ADD and ADHD? Sure. So the the answer to the first question is yes, it's real. And mm-hmm. again, that oversimplifies the idea that it's actually a collection of symptoms. And you asked about the difference between ADHD and ADD. We don't really use ADD as a diagnosis anymore. It's ADHD that is either primarily inattentive or primarily impulsive and um, hyperactive. Or, okay. or you can have a combined diagnosis. So, so that, you might see more social problems with ADHD or m- well, so or I mean, more? inattentive is you know is a sort of the ADHD where you think of people who have a hard time focusing on something for long periods of time, maybe you have a hard time completing projects and mm-hmm. and you know sitting down reading a book or sitting through a class. The impulsive, hyperactive are the kids who tend to get in trouble because they're um, disobedient in some ways. They speak out of turn. They're disruptive. Maybe okay. they conduct themselves inappropriately because they engage in the sort of actions that are not socially acceptable due to the impulsivity. I mean, I can talk from personal experience, having a little bit of the, um, a lot of the inattentive, a little bit of the hyperactive and impulsive for sure. You know, the way, and so again, I'm, I'm the combined type, and it's essentially the way that it sort of ends up feeling is, while most people say things to me like, well, didn't you know that that was not the right action to to take at that moment? Did you mm. kind of have a sense of, well, I really shouldn't be doing this? And the answer is no. Mm. Um, what ends up happening for people who have the impulsivity component, let's say, is the action happens before you have any cognitive processing of it. Yeah, so, you're not thinking about consequences. Well, it's right. you're not thinking about the action. It, yeah. it just, you start acting. Okay. I mean, I'll, 
you know, I can remember an endless number of times in classes at school, even college, as far as college, where I would be talking based on the thoughts that are happening in my head without any moment where I would say to myself, is this something that I should actually be saying out loud right now in class? And so you can end up being really disruptive. And, you know, for somebody like me, you can end up getting into things like drug use and other dangerous activities, not because you're a bad kid and not because you want to get in trouble, but because you don't have that filter of which actions, you don't have the time, you don't have that kind of five second delay to say, yeah, maybe I should watch out from this one. Well, and it, it, it with young people and teenagers, that frontal lobe, the ability to make judgment calls is not even fully developed already. So exactly. it must be very it, risky yeah. in that sense. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kids get diagnosed with ADHD pretty early on. And I think that's to some extent, one of the kind of positive elements of trying to diagnose kids early on, because later on you get into the teen years, everybody seems impulsive. Well, yeah, I think that that's part of the view of people who think, oh, why are we calling everything, you know, ADHD? I mean, they're kids. Like, do we just want them to be well behaved? I've heard that over and over and over again. Again, I've, I've known kids who have really severe ADHD, the combined type where they're very hyperactive you can tell something is off, right? Okay. I mean, when it's somebody who's really severe, you can tell there's a problem. They're fidgeting constantly. They're never able to sit in one place. Even if they're trying to sit in the seat, they'll constantly be moving up and it, pulling their legs up, pulling them down, moving mm -hmm. around. So the question, I think, like almost all diagnoses that we provide in the context of mental health is, is it causing discomfort for the individual in their daily life? So it's not about if it's causing us discomfort, that might not okay. be strong enough for a diagnosis. Is it providing consequences for them? Are they unable to sit through a class? But I completely agree with you. I'm actually going to give a TEDx talk on this uh, in late May. I think we overuse labels. Mm -hmm. They're convenient. Mm -hmm. They're easy, shorthand descriptors for us to explain what's going on with a person. But they also de-individuate. So they, they make the person have to kind of conform to a label instead of allowing people to have a lot more variability around what having ADHD might be look like. Do you have many adults coming to you and saying, I think I might We do. Need, so I you know, I think I might um, have ADHD and or you know, because I've I have had clients who suddenly sort of everything becomes clear to them because they go, Oh my gosh, my doctor just diagnosed me as ADHD and my whole life makes sense now. Yep. Again, I can use myself as an example. My mother tried to take me to a psychiatrist when I was a kid and I was cleared. But the rationale back then, this is the late 70s, early 80s, the rationale mm -hmm. was that ADHD kids don't do well in school. And I was getting straight A, so it oh. didn't jive with the diagnosis. And they ended up clearing me of it. I got diagnosed eventually in grad school because I had ended up hitting my wall. I was not able to sit down and do the work that I need to do. Now, you know, again, I was a meth addict earlier. And so to me, that makes a lot of sense given stimulant use, which is Again, the medications that we provide mm -hmm. for people with ADHD, I I had med self medicated. You can say you can say that, right? And so, sure. Um, I had found the thing that made me feel normal, but we end up at alternatives. We end up with a lot of people who come in either knowing that they have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, thinking that they do, and then we end up finding that's actually a misdiagnosis, mm. or dealing with impulsivity and attention issues and relegating them to some other problems, early trauma, et cetera. And then we do these brain scans called QEGs on all of our incoming clients. And we find out, you know, we can literally say to them, look at this brain pattern that's appearing here. You have ADHD. We can literally see it. So if, if I, I should have brought... I want to take one of these tests. Totally. Well, I, I, urge you, I urge you to. And let really? Me just, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm a neuroscientist by training. So uh -huh. I think there's huge power to understanding the way the brain works. Yeah. And 
you know, we talk about this prefrontal cortical development, and that's great, but it's all sort of ambiguous and ethereal. We don't really understand what it is. And even if you looked at a brain, you wouldn't understand what it's doing because it doesn't change shape during action. Right. It's not like a muscle. Yeah. And so uh, the QEG that we provide shows us your actual brain activity at a resting state. And if you looked at my brain, you can see that the entire frontal part of my brain has more slow brainwave activity than you would expect, which means that it's kind of numb. It's numbing out a little bit. It's yeah. slow. It's slower than you would expect it to, right? Well, unfortunately, that's your CEO. That's a part of your brain that yeah. helps you plan. It's a part of your brain that helps you make long-term sacrifices and uh, or short-term sacrifices and you know for long-term benefit. long-term benefits. Okay. So really it's the part that makes us human if you think about it for a second. It's the thing that helps us to helps us withhold rewards, plan for futures, um, all all that sort of stuff that makes us able to produce these kinds of societies and have podcasts and all that one. So that part of my brain is working a little bit less than I would like it to, which makes a lot of sense in the context of my life. High impulsivity, severe inattention, et cetera. So I have the neuroscience part of it. And for me, it was just confirmation. But for many of our clients, they never even understood that this could be a biological thing. Mm -hmm. And when they see it for the first time, we had a client who played lacrosse mm -hmm. in high school, never thought about the fact that maybe taking a stick to the forehead multiple times in high school might have actually might have affected him, his brain. Yeah. I mean, we go through this with the NFL all the time right like now, that. right? And seeing it, seeing that there's a spot around his forehead where his brain is just not really active and understanding how that is supposed to relate to his behavior was a huge relief for him. Sure. Like said, takes so your, much of the stigma away, takes the shame away. And then you can yeah. get and then you can get to work. Yeah, then you can get solution focused on the exactly. problem. So yeah. so I think the problem with the diagnosis of ADHD is that it throws everybody into a box where as soon as you say to somebody, I have ADHD, they assume that they know more about you than they really do. Mm. And I think that's the danger of the label. Sure. A disorder that has to do with attention, impulsivity, hyperactivity exists without a doubt. What we're hopefully moving towards is a more refined understanding of it. So mm -hmm. instead of needing a really broad label, you can say to somebody, I'm a inattentive ADHD or... I have a problem with long-term focus and things of that nature. So we don't need the label because to me, the one thing that the label hurts us with is we know from psychology over decades of research, when you tell somebody that there's a label that applies to them and their expectations in terms of how they will be able to perform given that label, mm -hmm. they'll end up conforming to the expectations, whether or not that would have really been their, um, their fate. And so by putting these labels on people, I think we end up restricting their abilities in a way that we feel like is supposed to help them. But right. in reality, we might be hindering their progress. Yeah. So talking about the tests that you're able to do to look at brainwave activity, it is my understanding there's two types of pharmaceutical treatment, two classes of pharmaceutical treatment for ADHD. There's stimulant treatment, such as Adderall, and then there's, quote, non-stimulant treatment like Stratero, the latter being one that affects your neurotransmitters, Right. right. So they both affect your well, neurotransmitters. I mean, That's how they provide their action, right? So even stimulants uh, increase dopamine, increase, increase yeah. norepinephrine release in the brain, et cetera. And even there, you know, we have to be careful because even within the stimulants, there are differences. Adderall is different than Ritalin, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so different than Vyvanse and, and things of that nature. So we have to be careful because even within the stimulant class of drugs, there are different classes. Adderall is probably the closest to methamphetamine that you could imagine okay. out of all the prescription drugs. Ritalin is sort of a lower intensity version of that. Um, and then the non-stimulants, as you talked about, are work mostly through norepinephrine instead of dopamine. 
when we look at the non-stimulant, the it's a reuptake inhibitor, similar to an antidepressant, the same type of action, right? Sure. There, I think it's important for people to understand this a little bit, just so that as they get prescriptions, yeah. <laughs> these things are handed out a little bit casually. You've got you've got antidepressants which allow the serotonin to stay in the synapse longer. So the SSRIs okay? you were right. talking the about, SSRI. selective serotonin That's reuptake a, inhibitors. Yes, and then then something like Stratera is a norepinephrine re- reuptake inhibitor. So this the action is the same, What's, right? Yeah, it's a similar action, similar different, action. Chemi- different molecule that it works on. But the idea is that your brain releases chemicals for neurons to be able to speak to one another. And there are different ways in which you can affect that communication. In the end, as a neuroscientist, a lot of it, just a little bit reductionist, but it all comes down to how your neurons talk to one another, right? Right. That's all your memories. Even your... with a stimulant, right? Even I mean, we're stimulant. talking about it's just a different way of increasing Absolutely. it. So, so when somebody stimulants. says non-stimulant, it doesn't mean go ahead and combine it with all of your stimulants. <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's, I think it's an important thing for people to understand about yeah. psychotherapeutic medication in general, which is the only way that it's able to do what it's doing is by affecting neurotransmitter function in your brain. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. That is the takeaway from this yeah, little no, scientific conversation. There's no Always other way for it be to careful. do it. And so yes. you have to understand the mechanism. And I think there's a value here, which is, you know, what the way I talk to our clients is you can sit around and be ashamed of your machine. Mm-hmm. I kind of talk to our clients about, you know, the combination of your brain, body. I talk about it as being your machine. We all have our machine. We can be ashamed of it and talk about, you know, I have ADHD, so it's really hard for me to focus and how terrible for me, I, I can never read a book and all that sort of stuff. Or we can get a really refined understanding of it and understand that my machine has strengths and weaknesses and I can play towards the strength. So for instance, I'm a pretty good multitasker and I can have 14, 15 projects going on at the same time that will drive other people crazy because they can't shift their attention constantly. Mm-hmm. My problem is in finishing those projects and putting a nice bow on it and, and sending it off. And so I need help with that. Mm-hmm. And, but having that understanding allows me to fit what I do on a daily basis into my strengths. Where I think we we landed in trouble is trying to get somebody who has an ADHD-like brain to be somebody who doesn't. What I'm asking about the treatment is, wouldn't it make sense to look at how somebody's brain is functioning before you decide which of these medications to use? Or is it sort of a trial and error kind of thing it's a trial regardless? And, it, no, normally it's a trial and error sort of thing, but that's, I think, a, a limitation of the technology that a lot of psychiatrists, let's say, employ, right? So like like I said, we use a QEG. Not a terribly complicated process, but I'll tell you there aren't that many people that provide it um, around LA. Is it expensive? It's not cheap. It's $1,200 by itself for the assessment. Does insurance ever cover it? Yeah. Like we take PPO and sometimes they'll cover as much as 50, 60% of the cost. Cool. But what you end up at the end is with a real understanding of what your brain is doing instead of just what does it feel like? Mm. Because a lot of different symptoms can actually have similar ideology in the brain. They can come from similar sort of dysfunction in the brain and vice versa. You can have things that look really, really different in the brain that feel really, really similar on the outside. And so people come to us saying, I have ADHD. We look at their brain, they really don't have ADHD. They're more like anxiety plus OCD. But when they reported that to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist landed on ADHD and they've walked around with that diagnosis for years, 15, 20 years. Right, right. And maybe have been taking stimulants stimulants. saying they're not really doing anything for me. Uh, And so, so I think we're moving more and more towards individualized medicine. It's actually a thing that's been, you've been hearing it around for the last five to 10 years. I think we're going to get better at it. I mean, genetic influence and and being able to do these sort of readings on people on the spot to be able to tailor the treatment, I think is hugely important. That's really exciting. I had no idea that was even available. Yeah. I mean, we do some of that already at Alternatives, more on the addiction side. But if somebody has 
problem with alcohol, there's some genes that we want to test to to know what sort of medications they might respond to, et cetera. So I think talk to me in five to 10 years, <laughs> and, uh, and I think we'll be fought much farther along that way. But I think what you're hitting on is a really important point, which is if you're going to take a medication, it's important to know your own underlying risks, right? One of the things that people worry about a lot with ADHD stimulant medication is the abuse risk, right? Getting addicted to it. Mm-hmm. I want to be clear. Research shows that among kids who are who have ADHD, being medicated doesn't lead to an increase in addiction risk. Being medicated among ADHD kids actually leads to a reduced risk over time. But mm-hmm. what ends up happening a lot of times is that those medications make the rounds, right? So their friends start taking the medication mm-hmm. without being diagnosed. And kids who try stimulant use early on in life, especially if they're not diagnosed, right, because they don't and, yeah. end up with a higher risk of addiction. So we have to really look at the data and be be a little more refined than just saying people who take stimulants end up being addicted more often. Because the problem is that people with impulsivity and uh, hyperactivity, ADHD, end up being addicted to drugs more frequently anyway. So the, it's not we expect them to have more problems later on. Does the medication help or not? Is a sort of a separate issue and it's a little bit more complicated than just saying kids who take this medication. It's almost like saying people who take uh, antidepressants commit more suicide. Well, that's because they're depressed. That's the reason why they take antidepressants. So we have to shy away from making huge generalizations. Right. You can make correlations between anything pretty much. It's really dangerous. Yeah, with enough data, it gets really, really dangerous. It does, yeah. You have to watch out for it. And you know, you talked about the prevalence, right? Somewhere between 5 to 7% of kids mm-hmm. have this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so if we're talking about those numbers, we're not talking about 1%, one-tenth of 1%. We need to be careful. And the, what I like about the non-stimulant medication is it doesn't have the same efficacy. I mean, we need to be clear about it when it talks about taking control of the attention and things like that. But the reason it can work through norepinephrine is norepinephrine reuptake is actually those molecules are the things that are doing this in the front of your brain. So it's a slightly more targeted approach than mm. a stimulant medication. People don't like it as much. Why? Because it doesn't release a lot of dopamine, which means that the parts of your brain that tell your brain that something is good mm. are not being activated. In the same right. Way. So you don't necessarily have that that good feeling. Yep. And yeah. I, you know, I, I mentioned that I uh, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. I have medication and I rarely take it. Mm. And the reason I rarely take it is I hate the side effects. And so the only way I'll take my medication is if I know that I have a day where. I have to be able to pay attention and focus. There's mm-hmm. just literally no um, no option for me on that day. And I'll be honest, the latter part of the day kind of sucks because you're coming <laughs> off of a drug. Yeah, and so yeah, you're coming down. You are. You're yeah. coming down, and I think I think we have to understand this is where that little and and, and as parents, do you like? I think it's I think it's troublesome and and kind of heart wrenching to put your kid through that. I, I you know understand. to like here today's a test day. You're gonna take your medication today, and then you know after school it's just gonna kind of suck for them. Yeah, and so look, I think I think this opens us up though to a really interesting conversation that we never have with kids and we really rarely have with adults, which is how much performance do you want for what sort of cost to your life, yeah. to your quality of life. I think that's an important question. And there's an equation there because I was just talking to somebody yesterday in my office. We have this bias towards believing that somehow we should be able to produce a perfect life for all of us, especially <laughs> in the United States, right? It's sort of the question is what mix of self-help classes and books along with medication and TV shows do you need to take for yourself right. to have the perfect life? Yeah. And how much money does need, yeah. do you need to have in your bank? And, and that your life has to be perfect to be great. It's sure. like... And the joke's on us because you yeah. never get there. Yeah. You never, never get ever, there. ever, ever get there. And so it's a sort of never-ending chase. To have the conversation with your kid of saying, look, you're having a hard time paying attention in class, so your projects are not getting turned in the way you want to. Uh, you're not getting the grades you want to. 
we would like to do something about this. And then developing, instead of a shame-based sort of approach, saying, okay, well, how much effort do you want to put into this? How much work and what's the cost that you're willing to put in, both as the parents and as the kid, to get you back on track? And back on track doesn't have to mean straight A. Although, obviously, every parent would love for their kids to get straight A's. Again, we're dealing with our machine. And maybe math class is not the ideal situation for no, your machine. No, maybe you just need to get it done. Yeah. And right? so... But I think that's a really difficult conversation yeah, to have I in the U.S. I think so, too. So when looking at your, your kid's performance in school, as far as a non-pharmaceutical approach, um, how many kids really actually learn how to organize their homework and get it together and take notes and have good study habits? I mean, are there things that we can teach our kids you know, in ways to approach school that might, it's, it's more work intensive for us as, as parents, of course, right? Sure, and the, okay. and the educator. But there are special programs aimed for kids who really early on, three, four years old, five years old, you know, literally preschool, are having high impulsivity and attention issues. So there are evidence-based practices that you can employ that are behavioral in nature and teach them these sorts of things. But I think the thing that we need to understand is sometimes we might need what's called scaffolding in psychology, tools. We mm-hmm. might need to provide people with things that allow them to have access to organizing principles that their brain is not as good at imposing. Um, you know, because the brain is elastic; it can learn, right? Absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> this thing, this, these smartphones. I tell yeah. it to people who know me now, but anybody who knew me ten years ago, eight years ago in my life will vouch for this. Before our organizer and our phones were one and the same, I missed appointments, was late to appointments. I would double, triple, and quadruple book and then just not show up. Not because I didn't like you or because I had anything to do that was more important than you, but because I would say yes to you. Uh-huh. And then later on in the day, somebody else would ask me if I could do something and I'd say yes to them too. And I might forget about both of you <laughs> when the appointment came and do something else that came up on the spot. I mean, you know, anybody who works with me, my assistant knows nowadays, it's a pretty difficult thing for me now. And I have a phone that tells me what to do every moment of every day. I'm scheduled from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep because without that level of structure, I am horrible at addressing any sort of functions and, and appointments and things like that in my life. So I know that I can be ashamed about it if I want, but it's not going to do anything better. It's not going right. to change the way I am. I also know I don't like to take the medication that makes me so strict and controlled. The later part of my day is just destroyed. And so I get to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to do that with our kids to some extent. And and we have to make, again, the choice as parents. I mean, you already talked about giving the kid the medication when they have to take the test. Mm-hmm. Well, that's even different than daily administration yes. of a pill. So yes. it's not that there's a choice of yes medication or not medication. There's dosage. There's specific kind of medication. There's the schedule at which you dose them. All those sorts of things are things that we have to start making decisions about. And it's a complex network of decisions because their performance, their ability to graduate, the kind of job that they get Mm -hmm. are all determined by these things. And their self-esteem. And that's one of the things that I think the parents find themselves sort of in the... you know, look, looking at the the red pill or the blue pill kind of thing, yeah. is that I always feel one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is the uh, is is the ability to complete something because you're mm. keeping promises to yourself, building integrity, all those things. That's how you build self esteem, sure. right? So, if you know that your child is at this great disadvantage of being able to finish anything, we kind of know that that really eats away at self-esteem, sure. right? So, Well, we can we can help them by... In a non-pharmaceutical way? Well, we can or, help them in a non-pharmaceutical way, but we can also 
build the expectations a little bit differently, right? So, mm-hmm. for instance, we know, and I, I knew this growing up, but I couldn't understand why. I do really well in high-stress situations. The reason is, again, if the part, frontal part of my brain is a little bit asleep, oh. when I'm hyperactivated, that part of my brain enters normal land while the rest of my brain might be semi-anxious, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I know how to deal with that really, really well. So last-minute deadlines, I I rock those things. And so... We can build things in that way, right? If we understand that that's mm-hmm. the way it works. I mean, one of the ironies of kids with ADHD is when you yell at them because they haven't gotten something done, you might actually be activating their brain to allow them to better perform. Why take it to the point where you're yelling at them instead of maybe setting up situations that where they need to pay attention for shorter periods of time mm-hmm. under what to other kids might seem like a high-stress situation, but give them a reward at the end for doing well in shorter periods of time instead of expecting a kid who's inattentive ADHD to sit down for three hours and study because what you're going to be producing for them in the middle of that is a lot of angst because they won't be able to perform to your expectations and that's where the guilt and the shame come through. Mm -hmm. So we have to adjust our expectations. Now, again, this is easy for me to say. I have a four and a two-year-old, so I haven't dealt with any of these things as (laughs) as a parent yet. But that's that's on me. That's not on my kid. I mean, if my kids can't run a really fast 100-yard dash, then do I want them on the track team or not? You know, that's a conversation that probably needs to be had with them about is it really important for them to win or to run for the experience of running? Right. If they like running for fun and going to practice, then by all means, go on the track team. But if you're trying to win and you keep losing, we need to maybe have that discussion again. And so mm-hmm. generally, I think we, we have this expectation that if we just find the right mix for these kids, everything's going to be like gonna be all the other perfect. kids. Yes. And yeah. that's just not true. So my friend Susan and I like to wax on philosophical. <laughs> metaphysical and um you know we're sort of tossing around the idea that you know maybe adhd is just a part of the normal evolution of the human psyche you know maybe we're developing into more non-linear thinking and problem solving and you know if we break down adhd into its subcomponents impulsivity Mm -hmm. hyperactivity and inattention let's say okay those are the three subcomponents impulsivity is not something new no if you look even at animals, and is it a bad thing? It's not. Right. I mean, so again, it has like any other element of this. It has costs and benefits, right? Mm-hmm. So, you look at uh, networks of primates, and the alpha males in almost all of those societies end up being more impulsive than the rest of the sort of non-dominant animals, and the reason is that's how they got there. The reason mm-hmm. you got to be an alpha male is you had the fight with the other guy who might have been a little bit stronger than you or was the alpha male when it started, and you won. You just or, didn't overthink it. And you were, <laughs> or you, were, you were willing to jump for that fruit that right. was maybe a little too far for you to make it. Now, the risk, mm-hmm. you could have fallen off the tree and died or you mm-hmm. could have made it. And so impulsivity is not all bad. It's the reason why entrepreneurs take a risk, even mm-hmm. though odds are they're going to fail miserably and lose money. Without impulsivity... And risk-taking, we wouldn't have huge successes, right? People, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college uh, to build Facebook. Could that have failed? It absolutely could have failed, but he ended up taking that risk. So are we going to penalize him for taking that risk? We haven't. We've rewarded him for it. Mm -hmm. So we live in the society where for each one of these things, it's as if we say, well, if you can multitask, that's great. But you also have to be really, really good at paying attention to each one of the individual things. Right. If you can take risks, that's great, as long as you succeed, but you can't fail, right? So... We have to kind of step back a little bit from this notion that there's a there's there's some mix that has all positives, that there's no cost to any of these things. We have to step away from that ledge a little bit and say, you get to be impulsive, but let's have the clear education about what that means. And you're going to take risks and some of them are going to make you fall flat on your face. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for the rest of your life? And if you're uncomfortable with that, then change the behavior. But 
from athletes to you know X Games stars and etc. We and great musicians and and then I mean if yeah. you, if you're going to talk about musicians, you're going to end up talking about obviously other things like depression, anxiety, sure. schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, all these disorders that we've just labeled as bad. Mm-hmm. Also have examples of people who we admire who quote unquote struggle with them on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. the question is, what vocation, what explorations fit your machine? And we're talking about ADHD. I think education and early behavioral interventions can help kids figure out what to do. But then the way that we challenge them is also something we need to adjust. The way we do um, after the QEG at Alternatives, for instance, what we do with clients, and um, we deal with this from four-year-olds to seven-year-olds. Okay. They, they have problems paying attention when they're impulsive. And there are methods to use that are non-medicated at all to literally train your brain to act differently. Is this like biofeedback? Biofeedback, neurofeedback, yeah. Okay. So these are ways, you know, your brain is really plastic. So even even later on in life where you're not really making a whole lot of new neurons, your neurons are interconnecting in different ways. The way you have improved memory, the way you learn something new is your brain reconnecting neurons in a different way. That's how learning happens. Your brain is bitching. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's super cool. I mean, it's actually, every time I talk about the brain, it's amazing. It's amazing. That I, I can even talk, talk right about now. the brain. Yeah, I know. And then, so we sit kids in front of, let's say if we're talking about the children clients, we sit them essentially in front of a video game, but their brain is controlling the video game and through interactions with the video, they get to learn how to, let's say, activate their prefrontal cortex more heavily. This takes time. It takes a lot more time than popping a pill, but over two to three months, you can see huge differences in impulsivity. I've seen seen kids who couldn't sit still the first three to five sessions, come in, sit down, and have an incredibly calm, relaxed sessions. Normally, the kids and the educators are the people who pay attention first, and maybe the teacher will call the parents and say, oh, you finally put them on medication. And the parents will say, no, <laughs> not really. I, we, we did this other thing instead. And so I think it's important for parents to educate themselves. The nice yeah. thing about these methods is you're using your brain's natural resources instead of introducing a chemical. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as extreme right? in the sense that 30 minutes after the training, you don't get a huge effect, but the brain is getting stronger. We, t- we talk about it like going to the gym for your brain, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to make your arm stronger, you can take a stimulant and feel like you're stronger and, and have some increased strength. But what you can do instead is take some time, train your biceps, train your back, train your legs. And at the end of a few months of training, you can lift heavier weights. And if you start using that capacity over time, you get to keep it, right? Well, it's interesting because we're willing to accept these things. Um, there's a lot of talk about, oh, as you get older, you should do crossword puzzles or Sudoku or whatever just to keep your brain stimulated and keep your brain working. And there's apps and things designed to help sure. you improve your memory. So again, if we can look at ADHD as really a part of your brain, right? That is... Yeah. That metaphysical what? question that you asked is is about... It gets back to that label thing that I was talking about, right? right? I think what we need to start looking at is we all have variations. All of us. Yes. So we all have impulsivity to some extent. Some of us have very low impulsivity, which means we're what's called risk averse. We don't take risks as often. And then we have people who are so impulsive, you don't understand how they're still alive. We have people who are inattentive to different degrees. Some people can focus like like a laser, right? And sit down and read a book beginning to end, no matter what the distractions. And then there's somebody like me who every time something passes by or sound clicks next to my <laughs> ear, I'm on to something new. Right. And Neither of those is good or bad, right? People with almost no level of inattention might be hyper-focused and almost OCD-like. That's also not bad, right? Those are the people you want organizing your house and mm-hmm. making your to-do list. 
you might not exactly want to take him out on a night in the town. Well, or I was going to you know. say, all of these things make you behave differently in relationship. Sure. And so the other, I think the other thing that we deal with as adults and as well as with our children as parents is we, we want our kids to be happy. We want them to fall in love. We want them to be able to function well in a relationship and relate well and Absolutely. hold up their end and do all of those things and follow through with promises. And, you know, we want, we want them to experience love, right? That's why we're yeah. here. So, um, that I, I think, uh, and, and then you think about the medication, like what, how do these medications affect people in relationship? Like what can be some of the drawbacks there? Yeah. So, you know, again, medications have side effects. So if the side effects are so extreme that the kid becomes withdrawn when they're on a medication, they can focus better, but then they lose their personal relationships. That's mm -hmm. one of those cost benefit things that I was talking about before. You have to sit down and you have to kind of figure out which is more important and to what extent, right? Because it doesn't, the, the question is not medication yes or no again. It's mm -hmm. which medication, how frequently, at what dose, are there other interventions that make the medication less necessary and it's only an emergency sort of uh, situation. So mm -hmm. I think I really always try to get us out of black and white sort of answers because the black and white answers are rarely satisfactory. Can you combine biofeedback and medication or is Absolutely. that does that interfere? Absolutely. So one of the things that we find is most of our clients okay. end up needing to reduce their dose mm. because they don't need the same dose. And then after two to three months of treatment, a lot of them will just stop the medication or start using it on an as-needed instead of daily basis. Interesting. Um, again, the goal is to find the solution that works for you. Mm -hmm. And the danger of a label is if you tell a kid, if you're a psychiatrist, you tell a kid, well, you know, you're going to have a hard time interacting with your peers because you're too impulsive and, and inattentive. When they hear that, mm -hmm. you've now produced an expectation in them. And what we've learned, this is recent. So everybody, I think, who's a psychology geek like me, uh, and I think you are one too, has already heard of all the studies where if you get people and you tell them your expectation about performance on a test or anything like that, you end up impacting their performance just by communicating that to them. Yes. There have then been studies that show that you don't even need that to communicate that to them. I can tell you that this group of people walking in right now is supposed to actually be underperforming on this test. And something about the way that you interact with that group of people will make them understand that implicit hmm. suggestion. Now, somebody has just completed research showing the exact same thing with animals. So literally, you take a group of experimenters and you do a study with rats where the, the goal is to put a rat in a maze and have them run through the maze and you time how long it takes them to get to the maze to get to some food at the end. All they did was they labeled the cages half as smart rats and half as dumb rats. These, all these rats were genetically identical. The dumb rats took twice as long to run the maze. So something about the way that the experimenters were handling them wow. while putting them in the maze affected the performance of the rats already, right? Our power of expectation Fantastic. is so <laughs> monumental. Incredible. You want to talk about metaphysical? Yeah. The way we treat others mm -hmm. affects their performance. So if right. we're going to Just tell, the vibration you are emanating because yeah. we are constantly emanating a vibration. How do you it's hug amazing. them? How do you mm -hmm. hold them? How do you look at them? What tone do you use <laughs> They're with holding them? the rats going, poor dumb little rat. You get yeah. in your cage. <laughs> right? Or, I mean, you can imagine it takes a bunch of different ways, right? Like maybe they just didn't measure it as accurately because they said these guys are going to take so long and they were distracted and, and they ended up so knows, many different right? errors, yeah. right? But we do that to our kids. Sure. I sure. Mean, it's look, really important to understand that we do that to our kids. All the time. I Absolutely. Mean, there was a joke. I think they stopped using it now. Sorry, I don't have kids in, in public school right now. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's the short bus, right? The short bus yes, was known yes. as the place where all the special need kids would go. And so everybody treated them differently just by virtue of the fact that they were driven that way to school. Right. So the expectation for them, 
landed from the moment they left the house mm-hmm. and boarded the transportation. It wasn't even about their performance in school anymore. We now know that it's actually a pretty horrible idea to isolate all the kids who are not doing well and put them together. Some some of the people with the worst kind of Asperger's syndrome that I know of are the best researchers on the face of the earth because they have a really easy time focusing. They they let go of the social commitments and they can focus on their needs. So we need to move past this place where we set up the expectations mm-hmm. and instead talk about, again, I, I'll keep going back to this. This is your machine. This is what we understand about the way your body and brain works. What within that are your strengths? What are your gaps? And where do we need to work to maybe make you a little bit better at paying attention and sitting in class? Because if you need to go to a public school and sitting in class is one of the needs, mm-hmm. you need to figure out how to get that done in right. some way, right? Right. If if the parents have enough money to send them to a private school that doesn't require that, then there's these other questions. But sure. the point of pain is the place that we end up always focusing on, right? Where is it interfering with your function? And that's okay because we need to resolve those issues. Because not every gap matters. Exactly. Right? So not every gap matters. So, we don't need to make that always part of the discussion. Right. But then I think we also have to explain to these kids what their strengths might be from this disorder. Yeah. Right? So you have this disorder that is, uh, that's been called ADHD. Okay, there's these things that you might, you might find difficult, but here are all these things you might find easier than everybody around you. And maybe you can start shooting towards your strengths. Mm-hmm. So, so would it be your opinion that an occasional use for, for performance, obviously any medication has risk, or do you feel that that's always has potential for becoming addicted, or do we become uh, emotionally dependent on it? You know, right. sort so of the stimulant need Stimulant medications are highly addictive in the sense that they release dopamine in a specific brain area that is made to tell your brain what is good and what is not. And so when you get increased dopamine release in that area, your brain has a very simple process internally that says this stuff is good. Let's let's mark that internally. The more you use it, the more of that you get. Right. The, other, um, the other part that's important here is if you use it once for performance enhancement and it works really, really well, what's going to stop you from using it the next week and the week after that. And again, I can talk from personal experience. The way I got introduced to the drug that eventually ended up taking me down, which was meth, was not insidious. It was it was finals time. I was behind and a friend told me, hey, do a little bit of this stuff and you get through finals fine. And I did. Mm. And the next time finals came up, I used again. So it was only once every three months. But then midterms came up. And I said, well, if this helped me so much with finals, why not midterm? Mm-hmm. And then I started using it for projects. And within three, four months, I was using it twice a week. And when you start using this stuff that frequently, you get developed tolerance. Mm. You develop tolerance and you start having a hard time staying awake when you're not on it. And also your coping strategy, if you've now limited them, right, instead of knowing how to study and cram, you know that there's this easier solution just waiting in the corner and you end up over-relying on it. So So there is a cautionary tale. There is the potential for reliance. I think it's for each person to to kind of make their own determination, right? Mm-hmm. If this is really something that you feel like you can use in a kind of time-limited fashion and it doesn't end up interfering or getting into um, any other elements of your life, then maybe it's not that big of a deal for you. But there are other things you need to consider. Mm-hmm. What is the addiction profile in your family, mm-hmm. right? How, how have you dealt with things like this in the past, right? What are your drinking patterns? What's your other drug use, et cetera? And then the thing that you need to be watchful for on a regular basis is, is this starting to become more and more common in my life? And then again, the shame piece that I want to always tell people is it's much easier to catch this stuff early on in the process before it gets developed into a full-blown addiction. And to say to somebody, you know, I started out taking Adderall to do better in college. I'm now working full-time in this law firm, and I'm actually a little scared because I'm starting to use it more frequently. 
that's when the interventions can be much more powerful in changing behaviors. It can be pretty hard if you wait all the way until you're fully addicted to these. So things. if you're saying that to yourself, then it's time to really, really look at it and yeah. catch it, catch it while it's early before it becomes before it takes you down, Absolutely. like you said. Yeah. So if um so if a parent is feeling concerned or if an adult is feeling concerned that they have some signs of ADHD, um, where do they start? Do they start with a psychiatrist? Do they start with a therapist? Great. What do they do? You know, great questions. I mean, if you if you don't want to go directly to medication, yeah. if you don't want to go directly to medication, probably seeing a psychiatrist first is not the best example. Because right. <laughs> we've ended up, it's not, it wasn't designed this way. Psychiatrists no, used to be our psychologists. Yeah. But we've now ended up in this world where you go to a psychiatrist and you ask for a diagnosis, you're going to get a medication. At That's the end. right. Um, so if you want to start with other things, again, depending on the age group, I would even either talk to behavioral interventionists, talk to specific school programs that might end up being able to evaluate, mm -hmm. talk to a psychologist. Obviously, again, if it's kids, you want to talk to somebody who specializes in in uh, childhood psychology. Okay. Um, and then we're not the only place that provides these QEGs, and QEGs can absolutely help you get an actual biological assessment of the brain patterns that are underlying it. We don't recommend it for kids under the age of four or five, mm -hmm. mostly because it's hard for them to sit in one spot and do this sort of yeah. stuff. But by four, five, six, they should have no problem being able to administer something like this. And then you can get additional confirmation and get a sense that it is ADHD or tension issues or impulsivity instead of, let's say, anxiety that's manifesting. I love that. I'm really excited that that's even available. I think that's really, really great news for all. So thank you so much for uh, for enlightening us here. This has been Absolutely. great. And um, how do we find you? So addictionalternatives.com or Alternatives Behavioral Health um, online is sort of the, the ways to get us to the website. Um, social media, I'm at LA Dr. J, either on Instagram or uh, Twitter. And... You know, you can find me throughout all those things. I'm on Facebook and all those. Adi Jaffe, look me up. It's pretty easy to find me online. Great. You can like MILF Talk on Facebook. Please do. Or you can tweet me at MILF Talk. Uh, my book, MILF 101, is available in paperback or in Kindle, iBooks, or Nook format. Also, remember, you can always download your free goal setting and life rescripting workbook on my website at makeyourlifefabulous.com. That's actually a good way to help you focus on your goals. There you go. So <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening. 